between the blowing of the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Now, these parenthetical chapters, they're not put in arbitrarily, but they're on purpose. They're put into this apocalyptic, this revelatory drama on purpose. And the purpose is pretty important, folks. These chapters, I believe, are given to remind us that even in the middle of the most terrible time, the most horrific time that mankind has ever known, when it seems that right is on the scaffold and wrong is on the throne, when it seems like that Satan and the demons have taken total control of this world, and it seems like that this world is a train headed for destruction. These chapters, the purpose, the reason they're there are to remind us that God is still sovereign. That God's still on the throne, He's in control, and He's got His hand on the throttle. Now, I want you to know this with me, folks. This chapter here revolves, I think this is in your handout I give you, around three things that the Apostle John does. And number one, it says, John says, I saw. Chapter four, in chapter one, or verse one, excuse me, get ahead of myself. In verse four, John says, I heard. And then in verse 10, John says, that I took. So these I statements, I think it gives us a clue to the, to the tremendous meaning of this chapter, but also to this wonderful book. So let's go to the first one. First, we're told that John saw, and look at verse 1. John says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, or, or above his head, and his face was as it were the sun in his feet, as pillars of fire. And immediately we're confronted with a question. People want to ask, who is this angel? Well, there's a debate. It's been going on for many, many years between various scholars about the identity of this angelic figure. There are some who say that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are others who emphatically deny that, and they say there's no way. This is just a picture of another angel. Well, folks, those who deny this picture as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do so on two basic reasons. Number one, they make the case that uh, Jesus is never described elsewhere in the book of Revelation as an angel. And then number two, secondly, they say Jesus Christ is more than just an angel. Now, the fact of the matter is, folks, both of those assertions are true. But neither one of those facts prohibit this from being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to study it as that tonight. First of all, let me say this. To call Jesus an angel uh, in the Bible is not really a problem. Now, the term angel, like the term son of man, is a title. And neither one of those titles should imply that the one who bears that title is a created being. Countless times, and think about this, in the Word of God, we're confronted with that phrase, angel of the Lord. Uh, now, undoubtedly, angel of the Lord, so many times, it's none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you some Old Testament scripture. Uh, when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, he's called the angel of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, the Lord's called the angel of his presence. Furthermore, we're told here that this angel was coming down from heaven. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. But there's another reason, folks, to suspect that this picture here in Revelation 10 is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only time in the book of the Revelation where an angel is so meticulously and so carefully described. And this description, I believe, gives us clues as to the identity of this angel. So, let's look at this description. Number one, look at verse one. First thing I want you to see is his apparel. And it says he's clothed with a cloud. 
In the Old Testament, oftentimes a cloud, that was the garment of the divine presence of God. Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, when the Lord directed the children of Israel through the desert, you remember He led them out of Egypt and He directed them through the desert with what? A pillar of cloud. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 9, when He gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, the Bible says that God descended in a thick cloud. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 2, the high priest, whenever he would enter the Holy of Holies and be in the very presence of God, the Bible says that God would descend on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the form of a cloud. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, Jesus uh, is shown in all of his glory, and this is what we read. While he was still speaking, talking about Peter, remember Peter was uh, once again running off the mouth. Peter did a lot of that. He reminds me of myself so much. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 19, when the Lord ascended to heaven, the Bible says a cloud received him. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us when he descends, he'll be coming back with the clouds. So that's his apparel. Now I want you to see the second thing. Secondly, notice his appearance. We read there was a rainbow, uh, like a, a crown about his head or above his head. Revelation 4, 3, remember we were told about the rainbow around the throne of God. Now, a rainbow, and I think everybody here knows this, is a sign of God's everlasting covenant to this earth. It, it represents God's eternal promise that he's never going to flood this world again. You say, well, what has that got to do with what we're talking about here? Well, even the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in this picture wears that rainbow on his brow, that crown or that diadem of light. Why? The Bible tells us, and I believe, folks, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yes and amen uh, to the glory of, of God through us. So all of God's promises, they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see the countenance on his face. It says his face was like the sun. Uh, you may remember back in chapter 1, I think it's about verse 16, John speaking said his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. Once again, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, I believe it's in verse 2, it talks about Jesus, how his face shone like the sun. Remember uh, when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 26, it says that he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now I want you to think about this. What a joy it is to me to know that the sun, S-U-N, is brighter than the sun, S-O-N. Malachi in the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 14, he described the Lord Jesus as the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. Then notice the next thing John speaks of is the covering of his feet. He says like pillars of fire. Now a lot of this imagery that we're looking at here we have seen before back in chapter 1. And again in chapter 1 verse 15 uh, we were told that his feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. That means they were like burning brass. Okay, In the Bible, and I think I've said this before, brass is a symbol of judgment. So what we're told here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming not as a Lamb of God to save, but He's coming as a Lion of the tribe of Judah to judge at this point in time. Think about it. Fire burns, it spreads, it destroys, it purifies. And so it's going to be when the judgment of our Lord and Savior, when Jesus Christ comes, He's coming uh, with those, those brass burning feet of judgment to take vengeance on the lost world. Now look at verse 2. We'll break this one down. It talks about His authority. So we have his apparel, his appearance. 
now his authority. Verse 2, And he had his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. Now, folks, you may remember, we read about this little book back in Revelation chapter 5. Remember that? And we, we discovered this is the title deed of all the earth. That's why he's holding his hand. Actually, and I'll go a little deeper in just a few minutes on this. This little book has, has a dual meaning. Well, no, that's not right either. Uh, not a dual meaning. has the same meaning, but a dual expression. Let's put it that way. Right here it's shown as the title deed to all the earth. <clears throat> and when we first read about this book, remember it was sealed with seven seals. Now the seals have been broken. Now it's an open book, meaning that the title deed is ready to be executed. That's why you read, look again at verse 2. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. See, the planting of feet upon the earth, that was a sign of taking possession of the land. Do you remember when the children of Israel, just before they went into the promised land, God made a promise to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. He said, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said, to Moses. So... Likewise, folks, when the Lord Jesus sets his foot on the land and the sea, it's a sign that he's getting ready to take possession of this entire earth, that it all belongs to him. He's the one that holds the title deed to this earth. Now, think about this. All of earth is either land or sea. So I believe this picture is a picture of our Lord and Savior, and he's preparing to exert his authority, his sovereignty, over every square inch of this planet. It belongs to him. Now... See if I can get turned here. Our Lord's going to come back and He's going to take control of every square inch of creation. Uh, every mountain, every valley, every desert, every ocean, every hill, every vale, it all belongs to Him. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1.16, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. So the bottom line is Jesus is coming to take over and reign upon this earth. That's who John saw. Now the second thing, look at verse 3. Notice the announcement. There's a, a tremendous, a majestic announcement that's made. It says, uh, the mighty angel cried with a loud voice. He gives an announcement that all of heaven cannot fail but hear. John's stunned by the method and the message of the announcement. Because, number one, I think I wrote it in your notes here, it, it was a, a resounding announcement. I say that because, look again at verse 3, it sounded as the roar of a lion. How many of you have ever heard a lion roar? Anybody? A few of you? It'll make you spill your coffee, I promise you. Just about as much as an alligator jumping out of a pond when you didn't know he was there. It'll make you spill your, spill your coffee. It's a resounding announcement. Uh, it's a roar. Uh, you know, they claim that, that the roar of a lion, that it can, it can chill the, the most courageous heart. That it just it petrifies, it, it solidifies its prey in place. I remember reading uh, a book written by an English big game hunter by the name of Charles uh, Hawthorne Capstick. And he was a famous, famous, all knows who I'm talking about, big game hunter. And he had made the comment in one of his books that he said, the roar of a lion in the stillness of a jungle will cause the most seasoned hunter to stop dead in his tracks. Well, folks, I believe that this here, this voice, this mighty roar of the lion is a lion of the tribe of Judah. And oftentimes in the Bible, the voice of God is described as the roaring of a lion. Amos chapter 3, verse 8 says, A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? 
Now, I do believe that this particular roar that's spoken of here in verse 3, that it's a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Joel, I don't know if this verse is in your, your uh, handout or not. Joel chapter 3, verse 16. He said, The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. Experts say that a lion roars when they're about to make that final leap. You know, many times upon their, their victim or their prey. So the roar here of the lion of the tribe of Judah, I believe is a sign of imminent judgment that's coming upon this world, upon this earth. Now, we read in verse 3 uh, that with that cry, uh, he cried and seven thunders uttered their voices. Remember, seven, that's the number of, of uh, perfection. Actually, the number of complete perfection, the number seven. Uh, and I believe it suggests that God has the final say in everything. God's in control of everything. Here's another verse for you. Psalm 20, in Psalm 29, we read, The voice of the Lord goes forth seven times as thunder. Folks, I believe that merely echoes the fact that the judgment of God, it's coming swiftly, it's coming suddenly like thunder upon the earth. And nobody is going to be able to escape it. I want you to notice the next thing. Look at verse 4. It's also restrictive this announcement is because it says in verse 4 and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices I was about to write and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not now folks that's a pretty strange scripture especially for the book of the revelation I mean it's unusual because Revelation is a book all about unveiling. It's a book all about uncovering, about making something known. The Greek word for Revelation or apocalypse uh, literally means to unveil. The purpose of Revelation is to reveal, not to conceal. But we're told here that this message contained in the voice of the seven thunders, it's off limits. God says, no, nobody needs to know about this. Why? Uh, and I know people always want to ask preacher, wonder what that voice of the seven thunders were. I don't have any idea. Any way you try to figure that out? No, I'm not John. I didn't hear it. You know, there are some things, folks, let, let's just be honest about it. There are some things that we're not going to be told about. God says we don't need to know. You, you don't need to understand this. You see, I believe there are certain things that we're better off not knowing. And I, I believe if we were meant to know, then he wouldn't have said it's off limits. Don't write it down. You know, there are some things that God does not reveal to us because I think they're so wonderful that we couldn't handle it. And then I believe there are certain things God doesn't reveal to us because they're so terrible or horrific that we couldn't receive it. For instance, I'm so glad that I don't know the day and the hour that I'm going to die. Aren't you? I mean, if I knew the exact day and hour I was going to die, my, it'd be on my heart and mind all the time, and I wouldn't be any good in the present. And then if, if I knew that I was going to die tomorrow, for instance, then folks, I wouldn't be any good today. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that that kind of worrying, that sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So suffice it to say, God in His infinite wisdom, He chose not to reveal these things. Now maybe they'll reveal later, but God said, nope, don't write them down. But look at verse 5 and 6. It's also, a, a, I'd say, a reliable announcement because you're going to see, uh, well, let's read verse 5 and 6. It says, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein and there, that there should be no 
uh, be time no longer. Actually, better translation is that there should be no longer a delay of time. In the book of the Revelation, uh, folks, many times you have to uh, you have to go back and study the very words that are used to understand what's going on here. So, listen, when God wants to underline the authenticity, the reliability of an action, He's going to, t- uh, something He's going to do, what He's going to do, He's going to swear by Himself. You say, why? Because there's no one higher to swear to. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, you may remember when God made a promise with Abraham, because He couldn't swear by nobody greater, He swore by Himself. That's what you have here. When the Lord Jesus raises His hand to swear what He says is true by His heavenly Father, what He's doing is emphasizing uh, that God's very character is behind this statement that's being made. And think about this, folks. God cannot lie. Amen? God cannot fail. Somebody identified integrity as doing what you say you will do. Well, I, I think that pretty well sums up God. He's a God of impeccable integrity. And what He says He's going to do, it's as good as done right now. You can count on it. Now, I want you to see the announcement is also a uh, long-awaited announcement. I think I've got a refreshing announcement put in your, in your handout. The reason I say that, because uh, Jesus says, uh, should be time no longer, there should be no longer, should there be a delay, is what he's saying. Think about it, folks, no more delay. Now, that answers a prayer that saints prayed back in chapter 6, verse 10. Those under the throne that asked and prayed and said, God, how long? How long? He said, well, there's no more delay. This is is about to come to fulfillment. God says, no longer, no more delay, no more deferment. God sees the wicked, rebellious uh, world. He he knows they have spurned His love and will spurn His love and His mercy and His salvation in spite of everything He can do, everything He has done. They refuse to repent. And at this point in time, God says, no more delays. He said, that's enough. And let me tell you something, when God says enough, then there's no longer any delay. That is enough, friend. Nobody is going to go against that. When God says enough, the sands of time will have run out on a sick, uh, sin-sick, hell-bent, crisis world. At that time, look at verse 7, the mystery of God will be finished. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants... The prophets. <coughs> the mystery of God. That's a mystery, and you've heard this, I've heard it, we've all heard it. People ask, how can evil be so prevalent in this world if there's a God in heaven? you heard people ask that, right? It's a mystery of why good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. Oftentimes, I think humanity gets the idea that God is sitting on His hands, that He has eyes that can't see, He has ears that cannot hear, He can't He doesn't know about the injustice and about the unfairness in this world. But folks, we're told right here, God's turn is coming. Listen to me, no matter how dark it may be, no matter how bleak it may be, no matter how terrible things may look, remember folks, it ain't over till it's over. It's it's like that old saying about the opera, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. It ain't over till it's over. It ain't done till it's done. Reminds me of a guy I heard about he walked past a little league ball field one day. And the scoreboard, it was 21 to 0. And he saw a little boy sitting on the bench who obviously was, you know, a member of the losing team. Or the team that was behind. And he walked up and he said, son, it looks like it's pretty tough for your team today. Little boy kind of 
smiled at him, threw his shoulders back. He said, no, sir, we ain't been up to bat yet. <laughs> well, folks, I want to tell you, God hadn't even come to bat yet. And when he does, the game's over. It's done. At that moment, he's going to show the entire universe who he is. And he's going to do what he's promised he's going to do. Satan is going to be vanquished forever. He's going to be forever defeated. Sin and evil will be no more. Then we'll understand the mystery of God. Now the last thing. Look at verse 8 and 9. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Now, this is a kind of a strange thing that John does here. I think I've got mysterious action uh, in your handout. John's told to take the book out of the hand of the angel, but he's not just to read the book. He's told to eat the book. Now, it's one thing to examine a book. It's another thing to eat a book. So what does this mean? Well, let's think about the description of the book. We're told this here, this book here, that it's a bittersweet book. Now, I told you, uh, same meaning, two expressions. I believe this is speaking about the Word of God. You say it's the same book that you were talking about earlier? I believe it is. It's the Word of God. Let me ask you something. Who has the right, the authority to write the title deed of this planet? God does. God's Word, God's Word never ends. God's Word is eternal. I believe that's what it's speaking of here is God's Word. And as you study the Bible, and I, I'm going to lead on into this. Now think about this. As you study the Bible, you're going to find it's both sweet and sour. You're going to find that God's Word is both better and, and bitter, I would say. In the Bible, we read about heaven. Heaven's sweet, amen? But friend, we also read about hell. Hell's bitter. In the Bible, we read about the mercy of God, and it's sweet. But we also read about the judgment of God. That's bitter. The first two chapters of the Bible are sweet. They're all about paradise. I mean, it was a beautiful paradise. No sin, no evil were known. It was all honey and no bees, all flowers and trees. Until chapter 3 when Satan made his appearance. And he comes in, man falls down. Uh, the world's torn apart. Now, unlike a lot of gospel messages that are preached today, you know, you've heard it referred to as the health and wealth, the prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it, where they preach that everything comes up roses in the Bible, there's both good and bad. Now, folks, we're told in the Word of God that the godly will go to heaven. Hey, that's sweet, amen? But we're also told that the godly is going to suffer persecution. That's bitter. The Bible's sweet because the Bible's true. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. But it's bitter because the truth is not all good. Now, what I mean by that is, the Bible teaches the future uh, will be glory for the saint, but it's going to be grief for the sinner. Life's like that sometimes. It's bittersweet. Amen? There's a little poem for you. It says, uh, the world that we're living in is mighty hard to beat. You get a thorn with every rose, but ain't those roses sweet? It's bittersweet. You see, the truth sometimes hurts, folks, but the truth is always the truth. And the Bible is truth. Sometimes the Bible, it shares that, that truth with us. Sometimes truth we want to hear. Sometimes truth that we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. But either way, nonetheless, it's still truth, whether we want to hear it or not. Look at verse 10. The digestion of this book. He said, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. <coughs> 
The Bible is often described as food. It's called uh, bread in Matthew 4, 4, milk in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's called meat in 1 Corinthians 3. It's called honey in Psalm uh, chapter 119. And John is told to eat the book. Now, here's what I want you to understand, the symbolism here. Eating is a symbol of receiving knowledge. Now, we talk about uh, digesting a piece of information or digesting some news. The pastor's told in God's Word that he is to feed the flock on the Word of God. But John, he's also warned that this book is digested. It'll be sweet in his mouth, but it's going to be bitter in his belly. Now, the Word of God is sweet, no doubt about it. David said this, Psalm 19.10, The Word of God is sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. But the Word of God is also bitter. Now, I've been talking about this for about five minutes now. Bitter and sweet, sweet and bitter, bitter and sweet. Folks, listen to me. I would like to stand up here tonight and tell everybody, I, I wish I could, stand up here and tell them there is no hell. That everybody's going to heaven and that things are going to get better and better. But just the book of the Revelation alone tells us that there is a hell and not everybody's going to heaven. And it also tells us until Jesus comes back, things are not going to get better. They're going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 32, And then in the last days, He said, Lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold. Let me tell you two marks. Two marks of the last days. It's going to be abounding lawlessness and abating love. That's not sweet to the ear. That's bitter. But it's true. I, and, and let me illustrate this way. I found out as a kid... There are a lot of things that I really don't like the taste of, but they're good for me. Same thing's true about God's Word. We may not like to hear it at times, but it's necessary because it's good for us. I want you to see the final thing. Look at verse 11, the declaration of this book. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Why was John commanded to preach? Folks, I believe that, uh, that the Apostle John, he had seen enough war. He had seen enough bloodshed, heartache, horror, enough of the wrath and the judgment of God. And I believe he was wore out and he didn't want to preach anymore. He didn't want to write anymore, but he had to. You say, why did he have to? Because God told him, yeah, well, he had to because, listen to me, the digestion of God's Word, it is always going to demand the declaration of God's Word. Say, so what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, if you're a preacher, you'd understand exactly what I mean. When you take in the truth of God's Word, you've got to declare the truth of God's Word. There can be no compromise. I tell young preachers this all the time. You cannot compromise God's Word. You can't compromise in the pulpit. You have to preach the good as well as the bad. Now listen, folks. Yes, preach heaven. But you've got to preach hell as well. Preach mercy. But you also got to preach judgment. You got to preach the love of God, but you also need to preach the fact that God is a holy God. That's what makes preaching so tough and so hard at times. So often, you know, somebody will say something like this: "I know what you're telling me is true, folk, uh, preacher, but uh, but I just don't like to hear you preach it." Well, has it ever occurred to you that I don't always like to preach it either? Have you ever thought about that? One of the preacher really enjoyed preaching that message. I can tell you from experience, there are times, no, I don't enjoy preaching the message. But if you always liked what I preached, and if I always liked what I preached, then I promise you I wouldn't be preaching. It's not preaching, okay? 
And if it's not preaching, if it's not the truth of God's Word, then it don't make a bit of difference in eternity. And you're wasting people's time. I can tell you all kinds of stories, and I can, I can tell some pretty funny stories. With Marcia not here, I can tell several, but I'm not going to do that. You know, I heard about an old deacon one time who used to say amen all the time. And then one time, one day it came where he just, he just quit. He wasn't saying amen anymore. And the preacher thought, well, I wonder what's going on with him. One day after church, he got that deacon alone. He said, hey, buddy. He said, uh, you used to always say amen. Why don't you say amen anymore? He said, don't you realize saying amen to your preachers like saying sick them to a bulldog? The deacon said, well, preacher, it's awfully hard to say sick them to that bulldog when it's got you by the seat of the pants. Now, folks, listen to me. Sometimes... Sometimes the preaching of God's Word is going to grab you by the seat of the britches. And it, I'm going to tell you, it's neither pleasant for the preacher or for the person out in the pew, but it's necessary. It's necessary. Now here, I'm going to close right here. Here's what I want you to begin to see from this chapter. And it's the final message of the Word of God. And that final message is gloriously sweet and sweetly glorious. And you know what that message is? It's simple. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Satan is going to be forever vanquished. And the kingdoms of this world, they're going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to rule and he's going to reign forever and ever. That's the final message of this book. I hope you can say with me, like I say along with the Apostle John, I'm ready, even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come. Would you bow your heads, please? Before I pray and we have a time of invitation, my hope and my prayer for you is that you know Jesus Christ, that you know Him as your Savior, that you have humbled yourself before Him, you have surrendered your life to Him as your Savior and Lord. Because the day is coming when if you have never done that, you'll surrender to Him, but not as your Savior and Lord but as your judge and your executioner. Right now, Jesus stands with open arms. He says, come to me. You want hope for the future? Jesus said, I'll give it to you. You want strength for this present day? He said, I'll give it to you. You want to be forgiven for your past? You want to be set free from what bind you and what holds you, those sins of the past, the guilt of the past. He said, I can do it for you right now. Surrender your life to me. I pray you've done that. If not, you have the opportunity right now. Father, thank you for your word. Again, for its power. Thank you again for its, its direction and for its encouragement. I thank you that we have a living, reigning Lord and Savior. That, Father, he, He's not dead somewhere in a grave or a tomb, but He's alive. And He lives forevermore, and one day He's coming again. I pray for those here who, who maybe they don't know Him, that they would tonight. Father, that each one of us would be prepared and we could say, Even so come, Lord Jesus. In His name, amen. Would you stand, please.